I'd invite you to go ahead and pull out your Bibles, and uh, in your in your uh, bulletin this morning are some notes. And uh, this morning, it's a privilege for me to uh, to introduce a close buddy of mine. Uh, we're gonna um, we're gonna get to hear from uh, my buddy Todd Brigette. And uh, Todd was one of those guys who stood next to me uh, on my wedding day and heard my vows and uh, celebrated that day with me. He's been really kind of a uh, a longtime friend since early college, and he's a pastor down in Morgan Hill at a church called West Hills, and um, just a, a godly guy. I'm looking forward to hearing from him myself. So would you just welcome uh, Todd Brigette here? There we go. We got it. Uh, not only did I get to stand with Dave at his wedding, but he was able to, to stand next to me at my wedding. And uh, we have known each other since high school, which is unfortunately a long time ago now uh, for both of us, more so for me. You were a freshman when I was a senior, and I remember him being just this little guy and um, coming to a Bible study that was in my home. And uh, you passed me up a long time ago, brother. And uh, I just want to say what a privilege it is to be able to be in uh, this pulpit today and be able to share God's word with you. You can turn to John chapter 2 in the series through the Gospel of John. I told Dave that I know that God has entrusted him with this pulpit. And so anytime that he allows someone else to be in here, um, he has thought that through. And uh, I take that as a a very humble request uh, of, of me to be here, and I'm so thrilled uh, to be to be in this pulp today and to share with you from John chapter 2. History is filled with turning points. Maybe you think of some to yourself, some that might quickly come to your mind, those, those big historical moments where the world was never the same after that. Some of them were subtle at the time, and then the waves of what took place after that happened for years and years. For instance, when Columbus discovered the New World, when Luther nailed those 95 treatises on the Wittenberg door, history was never the same again. The Boston Tea Party, even though that was specifically an American turning point, it, it definitely had ramifications for the rest of the world, rest of history. About when Henry Ford developed the automobile. About when the Wright brothers discovered flight. About when Ben Franklin discovered electricity or Sir Arthur Alexander Fleming discovered penicillin. Pearl Harbor, Hiroshima, more recently the fall of communism and September 11th. 2001. These are all monumental historical moments where the world has not quite been the same ever since those days. More specifically, there are events in our own lives that were turning points. Obviously, our first steps when we got our driver's license. Graduation. Maybe some of you are still hoping for graduation at some point. Looking forward to those days. Maybe it was your wedding. Maybe it was the death of a loved one, or the birth of a loved one. Those are all personal turning points in our lives where our own personal lives 
have never been the same since then. And if you're a Christian today, of course, probably the biggest turning point in your life was when you received Christ as Lord and Savior of your life. And your life, hopefully, has never been the same since. That's the message of the gospel as it affects our lives. Well, what we're going to look at today in John chapter 2 is just such a turning point. A turning point in the ministry and career of Jesus Christ that, of course, the world has never been the same since. The key moment in all of the history of this world is when Christ was born. God became flesh and dwelt among us. And that is at the heart of this gospel, the gospel of John. And today is that we're going to look at that moment when his ministry really began. And he performed his first miracle. And so his earthly ministry totally changed from what it had until that point. John chapter 2, if you would read with me, you can follow along. I'm reading from the ESV translation, starting with verse 1 of chapter 2. It goes like this. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. What a great story. It's got some very deep implications. In this series on decent exposure, we get a glimpse into the beginning of Jesus' ministry and how he kicked that off in such a a dynamic and personal way in this particular situation. And of course, the world has never been the same since. And as we get a glimpse into the beginning of Jesus' ministry, at the very heart of this story is the theme of obedience. Maybe that was obvious to some of you. It wasn't quite as obvious to me until I began to study this and look this over and really dig into this. I've heard this story several times having grown up in church. But really to see at the heart of this just came came to the surface for me was this idea of obedience and how important obedience is as we follow Christ. And it's very much a part of this as Jesus reveals something amazing about himself in this situation. The underlying theme is obedience. So that's what we want to look at today in this amazing story. You know, John's intent is to demonstrate the incarnate God-man. It's a fancy terminology for the fact that God became a man. And I know that's what you've been studying through chapter 1 and up until this point. As Jesus called his first disciples and the transformation that began to take place in their lives. And here we find ourselves at this wedding. This first recorded miracle at a wedding. 
Weddings in those days were a major social event, and they are still today for us as well. But for them, it would last a week. And usually a wedding ceremony would happen on a Wednesday night, as history would say, and the groom would pay for everything. I don't know when that flipped over. I have two girls, and I wish that was still the case today as I look forward 30, 40 years from now when they get married, (laughs) that the groom would pay for everything. They were a major social event. And so what we see here, too, is a transition from John the Baptist, who was the prophet calling out in the wilderness to the Son of God, mixing and mingling in social settings and doing amazing things among the people. This personal touch at this wedding. What I want to look at, if you're taking notes, is four elements that demonstrate the demands and the results of obeying Christ. What you see is the power of God manifest when we obey. And we're going to look at four elements to that. Number one, obedience demands humility. By the very nature of obedience, there is that response of the one who is obeying to the one that they are obeying. And in this case, we see that demonstrated, oddly enough, through Jesus and his mother. Throughout the Gospel of John, John never mentions Mary's name. And this is an an interesting situation here, where he highlights, this is the first of two times that John highlights Mary in such a way that Jesus refers to her as woman. It's interesting that Jesus doesn't say, Mother, what does this have to do with me? But he says, Woman, what does this have to me? The other time is at the cross, and you'll get to that soon enough in uh, John chapter 19, where Jesus is on the cross, and he looks down, and he says to Mary, Woman, here is your son. Behold your son. And referring to the author of this gospel, John. Relinquishing his duties, most likely, Joseph has passed away even at the start of this. And so as the firstborn son, he would be responsible for the well-being of his mother. And there on the cross, as he was going to his death, and of course, resurrection three days later, he removed himself in that position and gave her to John in responsibility. Well, here he says, woman. Now, you might think, was Jesus being rude? Because I know that if I referred to my wife and said, woman... What's for dinner? I know the response that I might get from that. And some of you feel the same. And maybe the the little hairs on the back of your neck when you heard that, gosh, Jesus is being somewhat rude. And this is his mother of all people. Well, take heart. Thankfully, things were a little different in the first century. And that connotation of woman was much more like we might say ma'am. So it was a sign of politeness. Ma'am, What does this have to do with me? But what's interesting about that, again, is that he didn't say mother. It was a polite but firm tone. Again, connotating that things have changed. Things are different. The way that you've known me all those years from Egypt and Galilee and Nazareth, it's different now between us. It's different. You are a woman. I am the God-man. And from now on, I will in one sense, no longer be your son, I will be your Lord and your Messiah. And that's how you will view me. 
What a turning point. Their relationship had changed. And he says, my hour has not come. Now, of course, Mary knew that Jesus was special from the very beginning. He came to her through virgin birth. It's amazing. Didn't happen a lot back then. Doesn't happen a lot these days either. Very unique. She had heard and known that Jesus was the one to be the Messiah. So here she found herself, and somehow she was involved with this wedding. Maybe the wedding coordinator, modern-day equivalent to that. Maybe it was a family member, and as families do, they get together in weddings, and they help each other. And so she, she was involved somehow, and the wine had all run out. And so who better than to go to her son, knowing that he's special, and she's seen probably several things throughout her life that would that we know that she's marveled at. And so now is the time. Okay, we know that he's Messiah. What better time now than to reveal that and then I could benefit from that and keep this wedding going. Isn't that sometimes how we view God? We only want to call out to his magnificence and who he is when we're in the midst of a situation that we need that. And we want God, maybe I know that there were times when I would pray before finals in college. And I would say, Lord, this would be a great time for you to return. Bring me home. Then I wouldn't have to to go through the finals. What we're learning through this is that obedience demands humility, that we need to know our position. And Mary was getting a new understanding to her, her position. And so she was calling out to Jesus, help me out here. And his response was, the hour has not come for me to be revealed. In this way. And when Jesus was revealed at the cross in a very significant way as Messiah, he submitted himself to the commands and orders of his creation. When he was in court, he didn't speak out. He just went along, says in Peter, that there was no guile in his mouth. We know that the charges were false. We know that it was a kangaroo court that brought Jesus to trial. Jesus did not speak out against it. He submitted himself. This was not the time. And in a sense, saying, I'm not here to be your genie. I'm not here to be your butler. I'm something else. Who he truly was, Mary knew. Jesus was communicating that he was on God's timetable, not man's timetable. You see, Jesus, as I just said, is not our genie, our butler. We've just read through John chapter 1. John makes a an amazing classification of who Jesus is, starting with verse 1. It just says, Review, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He is Creator God. And in that sense, reminding His mother of that very thing. We need to know our position as we obey. And secondly, we need to know our purpose. And there is humility in that as well. What's interesting, too, is that Mary didn't take this as a no. We don't don't see that specifically in here, but we know that right after that, Jesus gave her this rebuke. She humbly took it and then said, I know know him well enough to know that that wasn't a no. It was just, I was coming with the wrong perspective. And so now her perspective has changed. She's been humbled by that. And her perspective now is, she tells the servants, do whatever he tells you to do. We need to know our purpose. This is the heart of a Christ follower. That our heart is such 
that we say at any time, Jesus, I will do whatever it is you tell me to do. That's the humility of obedience. Now for us, as we have the unfolding of God's word, this word is filled with commands of Christ to to love God with our heart, soul, and mind. To love others. To love each other. Means in that sense that we need to know His Word so that we know what Christ wants us to do. It's pretty clear. By very nature, obedience means that the one obeying must humble self and submit to the one who's giving the commands. Know your position, know your purpose. Let's move on to number two. Obedience not only demands humility, obedience obedience demands trust. You see, our biggest obstacle and fight in obeying in trust is trust. And a key tactic of Satan, the evil one, is to cause us to doubt. To doubt the goodness of God's commands. The Garden of Eden. The very first temptation. What did the serpent say to Eve? Those of you who know the story, he says... Did God really say? And at the heart of that temptation was, can you really trust God? Can you really trust His commands? Man, they only had one. They lived in a world with one command. Don't eat of that tree. And what did they do? They ate of that tree. Because there was Satan saying, can you really trust God and His word? And we're encountering that all the time. Decisions we are always faced with. with, Do I trust God and do it His way? Or do I do it a different way? That might be easier, maybe even more fun on the surface. That's the challenge that we have. Here what we find in this, that Christ's commands may defy instinct. They're wanting wine. And what does Jesus say? She says, do whatever He says. And then He turns around and says, fill the water jars with water. We're looking for wine here. We're not looking for water. What's the deal with the water? What's amazing is I'm, I'm injecting that in there. Because that's a real human question that we have. When we encounter God's commands, oftentimes we go, look, this is what I want and you're telling me to do this? It doesn't make sense. My instinct says and my natural idea is to go this way. And yet you want me to go the opposite way. Of course. We don't see that here. They immediately went and filled the jars of water. It's the heart of the obedience that they had. God's commands, sometimes to us, defy instinct or what seems practical or what seems logical to our minds. How about in the case in the Old Testament of Gideon and his army? Gideon was facing against the enemy and what did did God tell him to do? Take less soldiers. There's probably never been a military strategy since then, that involves less soldiers. And yet, that's what God told Less soldiers. What? We need more, not less. So we had Gideon's army. How about David and Goliath? Great mockery there. Here's this 16-year-old shepherd boy with five stones facing against the mockery of a giant and takes him down in obedience. How about Moses and the rock? We're thirsty out here in the desert. God says, I want you to speak to the rock. There's, there's no water that comes from a rock. Why would I do that? And yet he did. Well, he 
took matters in his own hands and struck the rock and water came out and he was punished because he didn't listen totally to what God had him to do. Now, we may not encounter things like that, but similar things, right? When we read in God's Word and it says, I don't want there to be any hint of sexual immorality. And we may think to ourselves, but I'm lonely. And the world laughs at that. And so we encounter that doubt. Should I trust God and keep myself pure and wait on His timing and to to get married in the process? Or to stay faithful to my wife? How about this one? Love your enemies and forgive those who have wronged you, but you don't know what they've done. How could you ask me to do that? And yet God says it will be better for you. Mainly, one reason is I will forgive you if you forgive others. That shows the true heart of understanding your sin in light of God and then how you give out that very grace that's been shown to you. And secondly, bitterness can kill us. But it goes against our instinct. No, I want to be better. I want righteousness. I want justice. Lord, strike them down. But he says, love your enemies and forgive those who've wronged you. You see, here's the problem. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. And a very similar connecting verse to that is Jeremiah 17, 9. It says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? You see, it defies instinct because our instinct has been tainted by sin and corruption. Being born in this world means that we come with a natural sin problem. And it taints our vision. We can't see the big picture. Jesus can. Of course he can tell them to fill the water jars with water because he knows what he's going to do with that. But he doesn't let them in on that. He doesn't say, look... Fill these with water and just a few minutes it's going to turn to wine. Like, okay, we'll do that. He just says, fill the water. It's not the instinct. We're looking for wine here. Maybe you felt that in your own life where you're looking for something and God's call on your life is totally different. What always happens, and we'll get to that in just a minute, is something better always happens. See, our perspective is small and our instincts are tainted by sin, but Jesus is not. Christ's commands may defy Instinct, Christ's commands are also to be obeyed with zeal. This reflects the trust they have. We don't have any indication here that there was some sort of begrudging manner in which they approached those water jars, but rather they filled them to the top. Okay, you want them filled? Right there, to the top. 20, 30 gallons of water, there you go. There was no room for any other additive there. So when the, when the miracle was displayed, it was obvious that this was something divine and amazing. It's amazing. None of the servants questioned him. They filled it to the brim. And here's something for us. Obedience is never to be lazy or half-hearted. Every ounce of our effort goes into following and obeying, doing the best that we can. Our best efforts never diminish God's glory, and God's power. Though sometimes we are a part of what God does and it swells in pride. We've seen that happen. We've seen that happen to uh, very famous preachers and pastors who that power swells in their head and they think, wow, look what I've done. And it's God who's done it. And yet they want to take credit for that. And so as we, 
we become a part of what God does, it's easy for sometimes things for us to go to our head, but our best efforts will never diminish God's power, nor do we ever get to take credit for what God does. No matter how hard we work, as we serve to our fullest capacity. See, to obey Christ means to obey even if obeying counters human reason, and to obey means to obey wholeheartedly. And in doing so, both of those reveal our trust in the one who issues the commands. It's a great verse that, that complements that thinking. It says, And without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. That's an encapsulation of that very principle. See, the first two of these reveal the demands of obedience. And the last two, the results. And thirdly, obedience results in blessing. Obedience demands humility. Obedience demands trust. And obedience results in blessing. This is why Satan wants to stir doubt and distrust in us when we obey and want to obey. Because he wants us to forfeit blessing. Christ's commands are part of a plan. And we may not see it on the front end oftentimes. But that plan is a good plan and it's never, ever in vain. Here's some of the blessings we see here. Christ's servants are blessed with understanding. As we see that here, it says, fill the jars with water and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tested the water, now became wine and did not know where it came from. Though the servants who had drawn the water knew. They knew. They understood. That happens in the world. The world doesn't understand a lot of times what takes place in Christianity, in church, among God's people. They, they may be befuddled at times. They may be even angered at times because they don't understand. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. You can turn there if you like. If not, just listen as I read these verses that give an indication as to why sometimes the world doesn't understand. And we've seen that. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Now listen to chapter 2 as he continues in this vein of thinking. He says, But as it is written, what no eye has seen, no ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. And then in verse 14 it says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. If you'd like to turn back to John chapter 2, go back there. 
So the world may be befuddled, but those who follow understand. They understand because God has allowed them to understand. Not only do Christ's servants bless with understanding, but Christ's servants experience the best results. See, what happened was the best wine came out. And that was, as we can tell from this story, unusual. As the master of ceremony says, look, we put out the best wine first. As people kind of get their fill of the wine, some might even get drunk. And that's kind of in a sense what it says, have drunk freely. They've been pouring it down. Then you bring out the watered down stuff because people won't know the difference. They're kind of sloshed a little bit. Maybe they've been partying too much. Uh, this isn't a... This is more of a, a descriptive statement, not a this is what a wedding should look like kind of statement. Um, and to the master of ceremonies' astonishment, and of course the groom's astonishment as well, the best stuff arrived at the end. You see, it went from a worst case scenario, we're out of wine, to you brought the best stuff out. This reveals that Jesus meets a legitimate need at this wedding. He takes care of this situation. He kept the wedding going. He saved the groom's reputation. Can you imagine at this wedding feast, the seven days that goes on, and they run out of wine? He would have looked like a poor provider. He would have looked like a fool. And Jesus stepped in. You see, doing things Christ's ways will always result in the best outcome. Charles Spurgeon, famous English pastor of the 1800s, says this, When Christ is about to bestow a blessing, he gives a command. They connect. And that's what every temptation that Satan throws our way promises. A better way, a quicker way, in fact. We see from the third temptation in Matthew 4 what Satan says to Jesus. He says, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. That's kind of interesting Satan is offering something that Jesus already has, doesn't he? All the kingdoms are Christ. But Christ had to go through suffering and pain, death on the cross in our place. That was his path. And what Satan offered him was the easy road and said, you know, if you just bow down and worship me, I'll give it to you all now. That's at the heart of every temptation. Don't do it God's way. He can't be trusted. It's going to be difficult. Do it this way. It's easier. It's better. Most people are doing it this way anyway, so you'll feel right at home. But obedience produces the best results. You see, obeying may defy instinct, but it produces the absolute best. God is not limited by our resources. All they had was water to fill in these old jars that they would use for ceremonial purification. Jesus turned that upside down and says, I can use whatever you have and do an amazing thing with it. Last but not least, obedience results in a divine outcome. This is the most amazing part of obedience. God works and it's obvious that it's God who's working. They filled the water jars with water, but Jesus turned it into wine. No magician could do that. 
And then the ultimate result in verse 11. This is the first of his signs. Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Here's what God ultimately did in this situation. He manifested his glory. Now, it wasn't the hour for him to be revealed. Yet he pulled the lid off a little bit and gave a great glimpse. Who is this? That's why it would never be the same again. And in that sense, what he was communicating to Mary was, what I'm about to do and what about is going to take place, it's going to be different from now on. I do this miracle, word's going to spread. And after that, for three years, he was dodging the prospective bullets of the Pharisees and crowds and people who were coming after him for wrong motivation. And it was never the same again. And here's the truth. We work hard. We fill water to the brim. But only a creator God could have turned it into water, the water into wine. And the results were nothing less than a divine product. And it's true for us as well as we read from 1 Corinthians 3, 6. What Paul says, he says, I, Paul, or I planted, that's Paul speaking, Apollos watered, but God gave it growth. As we obey, we plant, we water, but God is responsible for the results because he gets the glory. And in fact, that's at the heart of these commands. You see, God's reputation is at stake when he commands us to live a certain way and to do certain things like fill those pots with water. That's preposterous. Who is this guy? This is Mary's son. What's he doing? We need wine. Jesus' reputation is at stake here. He says, fill it with water. And then something amazing happens and he's glorified. And that's the truth that every command when God calls us to love your neighbor, to love God, his reputation is at stake. And he's going to deliver if we obey him. That's an amazing promise. He manifests his glory. And secondly, most interesting, manifests his glory and his disciples believed in him. Where was the rest of the crowd? They experienced the best wine. The servants knew what was going on. What was different for the disciples, they heard the testimony of John the Baptist. They heard Jesus' own words in chapter 1. They confirmed who he was. He's the Messiah. We should go follow him. And yet this miracle resulted in their belief in him. And we have this in his word as a testament. Wow, Todd, I wish today I could see Jesus turn the water into wine. You know what it says in 2 Peter chapter 1? We have something more sure, Peter says. He saw the transfiguration of Jesus manifested in his glory on the mountain of transfiguration. And what he says is, you have something more sure, the written word. I was there and I saw it. What I'm telling you is that it's more sure to read it in the powerful word of God. And that's what we have today. We have seen Jesus turn water into wine. And we have this testimony. We believe in him. When we obey Christ, not only is our own faith bolstered, but others come to believe as well. I believe God is sovereign. And he is responsible when men and women come to faith in him. And yet he uses us in the process. He says, go into all the world. Make disciples, baptizing them, teaching them what you've heard from me. And what does he do? He saves people using people. 
Hearing comes from believing, and believing comes from the Word of Christ. Matthew or Romans chapter 15. You see, men obey, and God does amazing things. And here's what's so amazing about this. God doesn't need us. He didn't need water in those jars. He could have rained wine down on this crowd. He could have just made it happen. But he employs us in his work and then does the amazing in the process. And we get to benefit. We get to be a part of it. We get to join in and be co-workers with the God of the universe. And yet God doesn't need us. We obey and God does what only he can do. You see, things began to change here as I kind of wrap this up. We went from the wilderness of John the Baptist, the last of the Old Testament prophets, to the God-man ministering to people at a wedding. We see his mother go from that unique position to one of woman. We see the water turn to wine. And what all those point to is that this is the Messiah. This is what's being exposed here. Let me ask some questions as we close this out. Answers we've just kind of looked at. Maybe you can connect the dots in your own life. But most obviously here, is Christ invited to your wedding? And maybe your wedding was a long time ago. Is Christ invited to your marriage? See what he can do with any marriage. Has your wine given out? Maybe today you're out of wine. You've got nothing left. Well, maybe Christ is about to do something more amazing in your life to demonstrate His glory to not only yourself, but to others. And our call is to fill the water pots. Are you filling the water pots? Are you filling them to the brim in your life? Are you doing what Jesus has told you to do in His Word? Are you trusting, knowing that obedience produces the best results and that your obedience brings glory to Christ and others to faith? Christ turning the water into wine was a turning point in history. And maybe understanding this story a little bit will be a turning point in your own personal history today. Best application, what I brought to you today is the water of the word. And as we leave here and obey it, it turns to wine in our own personal lives. That I want to leave you with. Would you join with me as we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you're a God who does things like these, that you take what we have, like water, and using our, our best efforts, the things at our disposal, and you turn it into wine. And that even though we've worked hard, we look at the situation and go, only God could have done that. And only God should get the credit. Lord, thank you for including us in on this. What a blessing to be a part of that in your kingdom. Lord, let us be mindful of those situations where we need to fill the water pots in our lives, that we do what you call us to do, and that we might see the amazing benefit of obeying you. Lord, I pray for those who need that encouragement today, that they would walk away refreshed and ready to serve with new vigor and new vim in their own life. Thank you for this congregation. I pray you would bless them in the weeks and months and years ahead as they shine their light here in this community. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.